Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Friday, February 10th. I'm Joyce Napier. Tonight, at the direction of the President of the United States, fighter aircraft assigned to U.S. Northern Command successfully took down a high-altitude airborne object off the northern coast of Alaska at 1.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today. The U.S. shoots down another high-altitude object over Alaska. CTV News has learned it was about to enter Canadian airspace. What was it and where did it come from remains a mystery at this hour. New job numbers show Canada started the year on an employment high. Canada has recovered 126% of the jobs lost to COVID, and that compares to 112% in the U.S. It has been a remarkable jobs recovery. But are these numbers good news as a possible recession looms? MPs join us to debate. And the ongoing rescue mission after that deadly quake in Turkey and Syria. It is very difficult to describe the layers of suffering and destruction that I'm witnessing here in Aleppo. And it's very cold and there is no heating. What is Canada doing to help in the rescue and recovery efforts? That and more coming up on Power Play. At the direction of the President of the United States, fighter aircraft assigned to U.S. Northern Command successfully took down a high-altitude airborne object off the northern coast of Alaska. At we start with breaking news from south of the border where the U.S. officials say another object was shot out of the sky, this time over the ocean in Alaska. An unmanned object the size of a small car. Sources tell CTV News it was heading for Canadian airspace. No word yet on what it is or where it came from. CTV's Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malbon joins us now. Joy, nice to see you. Uh, good to have you on the show. The question everyone wants to know is, was this another spy flying object or spy balloon? Hey, Joyce, there are more questions than answers tonight. I mean, they're calling it an object, an unidentified object. Right away, I'm thinking UFOs. They, we, they say it is not a balloon. They cannot say definitively it's a balloon, but obviously everyone's comparing the two. Uh, here's what little we know. We know it was flying at around 40,000 feet. Um, the decision to shoot it down was because it would pose a risk to civilian aircraft because, of course, aircraft can fly as high as that. Uh, the president learned about it yesterday night, uh, and the decision was made to shoot it down. We know that it's about the size of a car, uh, whereas the Chinese spy balloon was massive, about the size of three school buses. Uh, and, and we don't know much more than that. We know it was unmanned. Uh, we know it was not maneuverable like the spy balloon was. Uh, and they don't believe that there's any kind of surveillance equipment on it. I mean, it could very well be a weather balloon for all we know. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, what is interesting and what everyone is saying tonight in Washington is how come it took seven days to shoot down the spy balloon that was allowed to drift over Canada, over sensitive military sites in the United States, and yet this un unidentified thing was shot down almost immediately? 
So maybe the Americans are, uh, could we say, Joy, a little bit nervous after that Chinese spy balloon was shot down. But did there was a Pentagon briefing, actually two Pentagon briefings today. Did they say anything about Canada and where it was heading? Uh, well, John Kirby, the national security spokesperson, uh, said at the White House uh, that uh, this uh, object uh, was flying over and shot down over the northeastern part of Alaska uh, near the Canadian border. That's as close as to, to Canada that they would confirm. And because it was shot down over frozen waters, they believe that they can retrieve some of the debris because they, they can get more of it where the balloon was shot down over water. And of course, uh, you know, some of the uh, the equipment and, and, you know, sunk to the bottom. They're still retrieving that and they still think uh, they, they can uh, find, uh, you know, find out what it was up to, what it was surveilling. Um, and as far as the Chinese are concerned, this object, they said they don't know where it came from. They don't know if it was a state. They don't know if it was the Chinese. Uh, but one thing that struck me very concerning is that the White House said there has been, quote, no reach out to the Chinese. So did they talk about where there are more balloons, where they in this briefing today, uh, the Pentagon briefing, did they talk about those, you know, those balloons, the, the Americans are saying uh, that operation from China spanned five continents. Did they say anything more about those balloons at that briefing? Uh, no, I, I mean, they said that they're retrieving debris. Uh, they said that they've got a lot of information. It has gone to the labs in Virginia, Quantico, uh, and, and they hope to, to well, they're not going to share intelligence with us, uh, but they say that they have retrieved a lot of information. What is striking, though, is where does diplomacy go now with the Chinese? Uh, Secretary, um, of De Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken uh, canceled his visit to China, and tensions are very high right now, as I believe they're pretty high in Canada as well with, with China. Uh, but it's interesting, there's almost like a cone of silence over what exactly they did find. It was almost, Joyce, like they were on a bit of a tape loop. They could say, yes, it was shot down. Yes, it was done, done uh, you know, right away. And much of the criticism at this immediate moment is the fact that this spy balloon was allowed to drift for seven days, uh, you know, over, you know, how many continents, Canada, the U.S., sensitive military sites, nuclear silos. And yet this thing was shot down almost immediately when it was spotted on Thursday. Um, and, and many people are saying now, has the Pentagon changed its policy? Are we actually caring about, you know, what enters our airspace? Uh, but of course, the Pentagon wouldn't go there. Well, clearly, well, they're, they're, they're clearly nervous and, and concerned. Uh, Joy, thanks for that. That's uh, CTV's uh, Washington Bureau Chief, Joy Malvin. Thank you. And we're also following new numbers that show Canada's labor market started the year on a high note. According to Statistics Canada, employment increased last month by 0.8%. That's 150,000 jobs gained and mostly in full-time work. More than economists had expected. Unemployment in January remains near record low, holding steady at 5%. While that may be good news for Canada's labour force, the Canadian economy, on the other hand, has been lagging. Real GDP growth has been stagnating at 0.1% since June, as inflation and interest rates remain high. 
But with the tight labor market factoring into the Bank of Canada's decision to raise interest rates last month, will Canada's job gains mean the central bank will hit unpause on hiking interest rates? And what will that mean for Canadians? Let's, let's ask our MP panel of finance MPs. Liberal Associate Finance Parliamentary Secretary Rachel Bendayan is with us, Conservative National Revenue Critic Adam Chambers, and NDP Critic for Tax Fairness Nikki Ashton. Good afternoon to the three of you. Thanks for being there. It's good to have you on the show. Um, Rachel Bendayan, let me start with you. So is the government encouraged by today's labor market numbers or, you know, are you concerned that those strong job numbers will force the Bank of Canada to keep hiking its rate? Well, thanks for the question, Joyce, and I apologies. I am coming to you live from a diner off of the side of the 401, um, and uh, I, I happened to talk to a few people in the diner just before we started. I think there is general anxiety about um, where the economy is headed, um, but it's not really specific to Canada. It is about the global economic instability that we're seeing right around the world, and I think people feel generally that they're better off here in Canada than they would be just about anywhere else. We had incredible job numbers in January, as you just pointed out. 150,000 jobs were created, mostly full-time, and that is well, well above um, expectations. Um, I would also point out to labor force participation. Labor force participation... Uh, is very high across the board, but particularly high for women. Um, women between... Uh, uh, 25 and, and 55 are, are working at record numbers. Um, in fact, there, it, that labor force participation rose to just above 85%, the highest um, since we've been recording that data. And, and that's because, you know, certainly in part because of the incredible program that we put in place across the country for early learning and childcare. So affordable childcare is meaning that yeah. more people can get into the workforce. With respect to you know, what it means for, for the future in terms of job numbers, obviously I'll let the Bank of Canada speak for itself, but I took good note, as I'm sure you did, Joyce, of Governor um, Tiff Macklem's comments uh, at the last rate hike indicating that there would most likely be a pause in, in interest rate hikes. So we'll see what happens over the course of the next couple of months. Adam Chambers, I, I want to know if you share Rachel Bendayan's optimism, low unemployment, high job growth is a good thing. Does that mean the Liberals' post-pandemic recovery is working? Or, you know, we've got to also think of all the money that was borrowed and that has to be paid back. So do you share her optimism? Well, I certainly share some of her concerns that she started off with in terms of what people are feeling. If you look at other economic data that we've had recently, consumer sentiment is at uh, very worrying levels. Business uh, sentiment also very low. Levels of investment are down. Aggregate demand overall is down. Yes, the job market number this month was a lot higher than expected. But if you listen to the Bank of Canada just a couple weeks ago, they said the reason they raised interest rates the last time was because of a tightening job market. So if the job market continues to tighten, this can only mean that the pressure for more rate hikes is going to increase. And we know that Canadians are having a hard time managing with the levels of debt and with the increasing uh, costs associated with interest rate hikes. So we've got to be very careful before we claim victory. We haven't slayed the inflation dragon. It's still three times uh, what the target rate is. of uh, It's at 6.3%. 
the target's at 2%. People are really feeling that pinch. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of reason to be concerned about the future. And really, it's going to come back to uh, a government who's continuing to spend money in the face of a very uh, hot job market, uh, rising interest rates. Their spending is making the Bank of Canada's job harder in terms of taming inflation. Okay, well, Nikki Ashton, this is where you come in. So does, would the government need to provide more support to, you know, counter slowing wage growth? I mean, yes, the employment market is, 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 is very hot, but, you know, given the government has indicated they're in a period of fiscal restraint, would more government spending, to Mr. Chambers' point, be inflationary? Uh, well, first off, I mean, uh, I can certainly take on a bit of what the Bank of Canada is doing, but I, I just I want to go back to these job numbers, um, Joy, because I, I don't think it's all the good news that the government is saying it is. Um, we know a lot of the jobs being created, even though they're full time, uh, are simply not living up to the cost of living crisis we're, we're facing. I mean, we're hearing the government promote that many of these would be in early childhood learning. Uh, we know that these are some of the most underpaid workers, particularly women in the country. Uh, we also know that increasingly a lot of the work that's being created is not permanent. Um, a lot of people working in contract jobs, including full time, but, but also part time. A lot of people involved in the gig economy. You know, there are people working multiple jobs just to be able to afford their base, basic necessities. And so, I, you know, it's not, uh, it's not all the rosy news the government is saying. Um, what really concerns us here is that we're seeing the rich and powerful in Canada be rewarded. Uh, a, a report that came out yesterday talked about the way in which the biggest corporations in Canada used uh, the wage subsidy in, uh, uh, in, in, in peculiar manners uh, and, uh, and certainly didn't make the difference in terms of employment that was necessary. Uh, and most Canadians, working class Canadians, Canadians on fixed incomes are struggling. Um, and of course, the interest rate hikes have not helped. What we need is to make sure that uh, good jobs are being created and that we're tackling the cost of living crisis. And that includes going after uh, the, the ultra wealthy and making sure they pay their fair share. Okay, Mr. Chambers, I want to I want to come to you because I don't have a lot of time left, but I want to ask you this question: You, your your party is saying the government is spending, you know, money too much money, spending, spending. Where would you cut? What would you cut? Well, uh, uh, Joyce, we've been very clear about some I'm, of the things we have supported and some of the things that we we think was uh, uh, not appropriate spending. So, for example, we supported the government's increase in the GST rebate. We thought that was reasonable, went to the lowest income uh, Canadians. We took a significant issue with the way that the uh, dental and rental plan was rolled out. It was based on a process that the Auditor General has called into question, that the Parliamentary Budget Officer has called into question in terms of relying on uh, attestation. Uh, there's lots of areas that the government can look to pull back on in order to have money to provide to those who need it the most. Uh, so we've been fairly clear about uh, how we would uh, view uh, any spending proposals going forward. That's unfortunately, you know, this is a topic that is close to many Canadians' hearts. I know we will be talking about this again. This is all the time we have. Rachel Bendayan, Adam Chambers, Nikki Ashton, thanks so much for being there and sharing your time with us. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you. Coming up, devastation in Turkey and Syria. Rescue teams are still racing against time to pull survivors from the rubble of Monday's earthquake. CTV's Tom Walters will have more for us from Turkey. Stay right here with PowerPlay.
And welcome back. The death toll from Monday's massive earthquake in Turkey and Syria has passed 23,000. Here's CTV Tom, CTV's Tom Walter in Turkey. After more than 100 hours, buried under a crush of concrete and twisted metal, the hand of a 10-year-old boy reaches out for help. Life is somehow emerging from the depths of the debris in multiple cities across southern Turkey today. Rescue crews play a 15-year-old girl's favorite song as she appears amidst the rubble. A worker wraps his supportive arms around her. As they dig further into more dangerous territory, the most vulnerable of survivors is discovered. A wide-eyed 10-day-old baby is lifted and carried to safety. Then an 8-year-old girl is discovered. Rescue operations from around the world now have boots on the ground in Turkey, including a team from Burnaby, B.C., who helped rescue another young girl today. It's a good feeling, obviously. Um, you know, we're all firefighters by trade, so we're already in the business of helping people. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's emotional. The, the, the people here, the streets are lined with families of missing people that are missing that are in the building. From the time news of the earthquake hit Canada, it took Ryan Berry and his team just 36 hours to arrive and add their experienced hands to the desperate search for survivors. Very fortunate to live where we do. Uh, and when we see stuff like this uh, in other countries, uh, we want to help and give back. Years of civil war have made helping in northern Syria more difficult. But even there today, celebrations erupted as a family is discovered alive. Chants of God is great echo through a crowd as another survivor is loaded into an ambulance. It is still clear, though, that this nightmare is far from over for hundreds of thousands, with the true scale of this humanitarian crisis just beginning to come into focus. As urgent as this work is, at regular intervals it stops. There is a hush, equipment is shut off, as rescuers shout into the debris and listen for what might be the faintest of replies. The question that lingers, though, is how many voices are still there to be heard. Tom Walters, CTV News, Adiaman, Turkey. And here to provide more context to Canada's response in Turkey and Syria is CTV News' Judy Trin. Hey, Judy, good to have you in the studio. Now, Canada has already committed $10 million, mm -hmm. pledges to match another $10 million in donations to the Red Cross. There's already some Canadians providing humanitarian aid. What else is Canada doing? Are there teams, more teams on the way? Well, there will only be one search and rescue team from Canada in the quake zone, and that's because the Turkish consulate says that the deadline for international teams to register has passed. That Burnaby search and rescue team actually applied through Turkey emergency management disaster t uh, personnel, not the Canadian government. So they didn't rely on the Canadian government to coordinate. So they will be the only team there today. You just saw they've done some tremendous rescue. They pulled a woman from out of the... Uh, the rubble. Yes. And I can tell you that other aid uh, teams are on the ground right now, such as Global Medic, a, a Toronto-based team. They have uh, set up tent hospitals, as well as uh, they're in the process of uh, putting in water purification facilities to help uh, citizens there. So, you know, when we talk about humanitarian assistance on the ground, uh, 
But are there plans to help those with Canadian ties, Syria, uh, from, from Turkey, out of Turkey and Syria, because both countries were affected by this earthquake? Are there plans from the Canadian government to get these people out? Joyce, what you're talking about is an immigration solution, right? So Immigration Minister Sean Fraser says that uh, the government is looking at fast-tracking applications for family sponsorships from uh, people who are stuck in the quake zone. I can tell you that there is precedent for doing this. Usually the Canadian government will help uh, refugees fleeing conflict, but not climate crises, not natural disasters. But if I can take you back to 2010, remember the earthquake in Haiti. Yes. It was also well above of a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. And at that time, uh, the federal government under Prime Minister Stephen Harper fast-tracked uh, the application for temporary visas as well as permanent residence uh, applications. Thousands, thousands were processed within six weeks that much shorter than the two-year time frame that it usually takes. Well, maybe he has something to teach the current government there. Oh, so let's keep our focus on Syria here because you have some developing news on another story that you've been uh, tracking about Canadians detained in Kurdish camps. Now the federal government is contesting a decision of the courts. Give us sort of the latest on that. All right. Well, you know, there is in northwest Syria, they're dealing with uh, the earthquake. In northeast Syria, there is the issue of the uh, detainees, the Canadian detainees in these Kurdish camps. Now, you'll recall that in January, the federal court ordered the government to repatriate four Canadian men, saying that you can't just repatriate the women and children. And, yeah, right. It is a charter breach to leave the men behind. Well, today the federal uh, government said it's going to appeal that decision. They're arguing that the judge uh, misinterpreted the charter by saying that mobility rights uh, gives the men a right to return. They're saying that's not the case because these men are suspected of joining ISIS and that they chose to go to Syria against the advice of the federal government. But they haven't been charged and there is no way that they can stand trial over there. That's right. They have not been charged and the only way they can face prosecution is if they are brought back. And humanitarian groups have said that it that this indefinite detention is a breach of human rights. Interesting. And, you know, the fact that the government appealed gives the government a little bit more time. A little more basically. time. But, they, but this, this will delay the repatriation of the men, but they will go ahead with the repatriation of 23 Canadian women and children. But, Joyce, there's another group that's left out. Uh, you'll recall that there are four foreign-born women who are the mothers of 10, ten Canadian yes. children. Their fathers may have died in camps. They are missing. And the Canadian government is saying we're willing to repatriate the children, but not the mothers. Well, Judy, I know that you will keep an eye on that story. CTV News' Judy Trin, thank you so much. You're welcome. And coming up, another mysterious object shut down over the United States. What was it, and why is the federal government keeping quiet? That's coming up on Power Play. And welcome back to Power Play. This is the list what's happening in politics today. The Ethics Commissioner's determination was that it was my failure to recuse because of my personal friendship with Ms. Alvario. That was the issue, and I accept his ruling. 
All contract awards were publicly disclosed. I cooperated fully with the Commissioner's examination. I've accepted the findings. I've implemented new protocols in my office and with the Department, and I have apologized. International Trade Minister Mary Ng testifying at the House of Commons Ethics Committee. She says no in her no one in her office rather flagged the issue when she awarded contracts to a company run by a close friend. And Ukraine says about 70 missiles were fired from Russian forces into eastern parts of the country, with 60 of them shot down. The attack saw missiles cross Moldovan and Romanian airspace, according to Ukrainian and Moldovan officials. And Canada is among a group of countries calling for a ban on Russian and Belarusian athletes at the next Olympics. Sports Minister Pascal Saint-Onge says, quote, Canada's position is clear. Russian and Belarusian athletes must be banned from the 2024 Olympic Games. I have reiterated this to my international counterparts and to President Volodymyr Zelensky. Let's stand in solidarity with Ukraine. And coming up, Canada's response to the Chinese surveillance balloon that floated over the prairies. Why did the government keep Canadians in the dark while it spied from overhead? The defense minister was in Washington today discussing with her counterparts as the U.S. shoots down a second object over Alaska. Our strategy session digs in next. Stay with PowerPlay. We were, as I mentioned, examining the trajectory and analyzing the balloon, including the height of the balloon and the contents of the balloon, and determined that it posed no imminent risk to Canadians at all. And, of course, we were watching it very carefully to ensure that we were doing what is necessary to protect uh, Canadians, and we were doing that in the context of, of the NORAD relationship, of course, so that uh, when the United States made that decision to shoot it down, uh, Secretary Austin did thank Canada because we were making these decisions jointly about imminent threats. And welcome back. That was Defence Minister Anita Anand, who is in Washington today to meet with her American counterpart. And we're learning more about the Chinese surveillance balloon. Remember, it was over Canada at one point. Well, it turns out the balloon was part of a wider fleet that has spanned five continents. And today, the U.S. shot down another object over Alaska. The question here is, should the Canadian public be kept briefed, kept informed, as the Americans are, or is the silence of the Trudeau government acceptable? Let's take this to our panel of strategists. Greg McCachran has advised politicians at all three levels of government and worked on the communications team for two national election campaigns. Greg leans liberal. Gary Keller from Strategy Corp has a conservative perspective. And Anne McGrath is national director of the NDP. You guess where she leans. Thanks for being there. It's always good to have you. Greg, I'm, I'm going to start with you because... I just wonder, should the public be more informed by the Canadian government? Is, is, is this the right communication strategy to just say almost nothing? Mm. I wonder if we'll be having this conversation a week from now. I understand that, you know, reporters, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the Twitterverse, I mean, the, this huge pivot 
as people went from experts on healthcare to experts on the military. Yes. Um, everybody hang on, fashion your seatbelts. But I think we need to look at this a bit you know, bigger. These are not even the same type of balloons. One is described as the size of two buses, the one that was shot down yeah. last week. This one is the size of a car. The last one went into the United States first, Alaska, then over Yukon, the interior of BC, then into the United States. And you know, we're reminded that we are members of NORAD. We saw that very clearly today with Minister Anand. We saw shout-outs from, from the U.S. military. And I think you know, in the, in the first case, they want to see it get to the end and to the recovery yeah, process to see what they're asking days, folks. Yeah. So I want to step back a little bit and go back to December. December 25th, China sent over 70 military jets to drive by Taiwan, along with some, some warships. Uh, Biden in December had signed a bill um, giving Taiwan support, even though they don't recognize them diplomatically, giving them a huge amount of support. And China has been very exercised on this. Our relationship, Canada's relationship with China and the U.S. is not great, and it's probably at its worst in years. So I'm okay with waiting till we get the whole story. Gary Keller, are you okay with waiting for the whole story? Do you think, because, you know, the Americans are briefed, I, albeit, you know, they're, they're, they're not giving us big secrets, but there were two briefings by the Pentagon today. Should Canadians, should, should we at least get that? Yeah, I, I think that Canadians should not have to depend on the United States for this kind of information that people are clearly concerned about. Look, there was a lot of attention paid to this on cable news. It was almost like an hourly tracker. And we know for a fact that it was picked up in, in parts of the, the first balloon, parts uh, of uh, the interior of B.C. before it crossed over into Montana. And it was only then when American channels started reporting, well, it's crossed now into Montana, that people said, well, wait a minute, it must, it must have crossed in, in from Canada. I understand there are operational decisions that have to be made, and when you're in government, you are having these debates internally about communicating. What should we say? What shouldn't we say? How much should we say? So I understand that those debates happen. I think a little bit more transparency from the, from the government would have been good and, and more uh, rapid uh, reports on it instead of waiting till uh, much later until the balloon was shut down and say, oh yeah, it, it did in fact cross into Canada. Uh, there is a lot of attention paid on this, but I also do want to step back and say, like, this is not a full-scale invasion of Canada. This was a moment in time. The Americans have taken action. They've shot it down. They shot down the, uh, this balloon today before it crossed into Canada and Alaska. And there will be debate about what this balloon was and as the Americans do the recovery. So, yes, there should be more transparency up front. But at the same time, let's not overblow this too much. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I see where you're coming from. But the Americans are getting briefed. Today, the Americans say they briefed 40 allies including Canada. So my question is, why, you know, why is Canada at least not matching that, that kind of information? The other thing to, to keep in mind, I don't disagree with the things that have been said, but the other thing to keep in mind that, is that this is in the context of mounting evidence of the Chinese government uh, behaving very badly yes, on, in the international context. Yes. Absolutely. So, so in that context, I think we have every right to be concerned about what the Chinese government is doing with a balloon like that. And the, the argument that the minister put forward about no imminent risk, well, there's no imminent risk until there is a risk. Uh, and clearly there was enough of a risk for the Americans to take some kind of of action. And I think that it, we sh I, I agree that you know, we don't need to know absolutely every detail uh, for, from, a from a security perspective, right? It, th th there's a reason why it's called security. But yeah. when the Americans are giving uh, briefings, when they're t talking to, the, to their allies, when they're telling the American people what's going on, when they're taking action, and we're 
essentially silent. I think that that's a matter for Canadian citizens to be concerned. Yeah, and we learned, you know, we, we learn more from the Americans than we do from our own government. I mean, this week, a parliamentary committee, MPs, opposition MPs, were saying, you know, why are we getting no information, for instance, on interference on election or alleged election interference? They don't even have the information. So I'm wondering, is, is this the right strategy or should they be in cases like this where this may be a threat, not a life and death threat, but still a threat to Canada's security, should they at least not share the information with other elected officials? I, I can answer this from a couple of points of view. You know, transparency, always good. Yeah. Taxpayer has a right to know. But also politically, a few weeks ago we were talking about the uh, um, the Liberals not really being able to even point to their successes. And I had said that I had heard yeah. that the passport numbers were really, really low. Um, and perhaps Minister Gold watches our show because during the Cabinet retreat, she talked about that that had been done. There is an inability generally, and I, I want to keep this you know, separate yeah. because until I find out exactly you know, what security, what military, what other you know, ramifications there might be, I'm willing to, to, to grade them on a curve here. But there are a lot of things. I think there's a column by uh, Max Foss at the National Observer that talks about the Liberals' government's inability to communicate things. We've seen this yeah. from things like budgets, where you know Flaherty could take you know the elimination of a penny and build a whole budget around it and a whole communications plan. Where often the Liberal budgets don't land with much of a, a thud. So I think there is something to be said about improving communications overall. So you know, I'm wondering, Gary. Opposition MPs saying they don't even know what's going on, so they can't, if we don't know what's going on, we can't even help. Mm. I mean, you know, should this be at least shared among par parliamentarians? It's a good question, and, and there is the wider question of Chinese interference in Canadian affairs, which yes. both the Canada-China Committee, which was established by the opposition, the government didn't want to do that, they established that to look into cases of interference. But the Liberal government itself had this hallmark that they created this National Security Committee of Parliamentarians to do just that, behind closed doors, share confidential information with parliamentarians. If they're not doing that on this issue around you know, potential interference in Canadian elections, let alone an incident like this, then what the heck is this committee all for? This was a big celebration by the Liberal government. Is it even meeting? Are they sharing any information? And I think opposition MPs are saying, you set this committee up to share information with the parliamentarians. Why aren't you doing it? Okay, um, and last word to you. So in this age, you know, sort of, of surveillance culture, basically, I mean, it's not new that we're being spied on and we spy. Let's face it. Let's say the, what We it all is. watched TV. Yeah, okay, I watch a lot of <laughs> programs about that. Should the federal government re-examine what is a threat, um, you know, and, you know, should Canadians have a right to know? Should it, should it be, you know, sort of become a practice of the government to do this? I think that uh, governments in general are a little allergic to, uh, to giving out a lot of information, but the practice, I think, should be to err on the side of more information rather than less, be as transparent as possible while keeping in mind security concerns and all of that, that kind of thing. So I absolutely think that there should be more information, and I agree, with, I, I agree definitely with what's been said, that there, there is often with this government a lack of urgency on key, on key files. So this would be one of them. I think that, you know, without being hysterical or without being, yeah. you know, getting people all in a twist, being at least kind of on the ball and, and making sure that you, you recognize that people are concerned about this and so you communicate with them yeah. about it.
Well, that's an interesting topic. Anyway, this is all the time we have, unfortunately. Uh, Greg McAkron, Gary Keller, and McGrath, thank you. Thank you. Thank have you. a lovely weekend. Thank you. Same to you. Okay, still to come, a deal the premiers can't refuse. The prime minister lays the government's health funding deal, but are the premiers ready to sign on? The press gallery is here where their political plays and misplays. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And welcome back. The Prime Minister finally lays out his health care deals to the Premiers, but that deal falls short of the $28 billion the First Ministers called for. So, did the federal government win the health care deal, or did the provinces take the political score? The press gallery is here, and they are ready to talk health care. CTV senior digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Aiello is here. She writes the Capital Dispatch newsletter. I recommend it. <laughs> Susan Delacourt is a columnist with the Toronto Star. I recommend her <laughs> columns as well. And our special guest is Greg Weston from Searchlight Strategy Group. Nice to see you all. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Um, each of you picked the <clears throat> meeting between the premiers and the Prime Minister as your picks this week, which I think is really interesting because we've got to tell the people who are watching us that they didn't call each other. They, okay? <laughs> so, like, hmm. Susan, I'm going to start with you. What okay. says you? Well, I'm calling... I, I wasn't initially thinking that it was a great play what the, the, um, the federal government, the Prime Minister, presented to the Premiers. But I think with the help of cigars from uh, Dominic LeBlanc, yes. uh, given to Doug Ford, um, the more the week went on, the more I realized that the federal government had actually done something interesting here. They have managed to set in motion a process without having anybody walk out of the room. Mm. They've got Doug Ford exulting over the leadership of the federal government, even Danielle Smith was saying, I can live with this. So this is one of those ones that it sounded like a lot of faint praise on Tuesday, but the more I've watched this deal, the more clever I think it was. So, uh, Greg, I want to ask you, so we also heard Poiliev, uh, Pierre Poiliev, say he'll uphold these deals. So is that a sign that this was a winning strategic move? I think it's a, a sign, Joyce, that they can't afford not to. Uh, I think one of the one of the reasons why we saw uh, such a, a a muted response coming out of this uh, was that all of these first ministers have have read the public mood pretty well and understand that the public appetite for shenanigans and the kind of gong show that we've seen uh, in past was zero on this. They want to see results. We've got people literally dying to get health care. Uh, so the usual um, uh, antics that we see coming out of this uh, were nowhere to be seen. And, you know, they have to take what they're going to get, pushing back and say, what are they going to say? We're not going to take it and people can just wait for health care. No, it's not wouldn't going to yeah. sell. So, Rachel, this, this prompts 
your misplay. <laughs> yeah, so I'm giving my misplay to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's press conference specifically, his kind of victory lap the day of the announcement, going to a hospital with, you know, empty beds behind him and healthcare workers kind of behind him, I thought was a bit premature. Possibly do that once you've got the deal signed and go to every province and territory and do that then. Uh, I think just beyond the visuals of it, you know, I think we're into the healthcare era of Prime Minister press conferences. We had the PM in backyards, we had the PM at EV facilities, and now we're into the PM doing medical facilities. Uh, but plus, I think we heard from some premiers right after that they would have liked to have a bit more time with Trudeau. Um, they had some questions they wanted to follow up, and, and so instead of doing a tight two-hour meeting so you could get to a hospital to do this presser, perhaps that time could have been used to have a bit more of a conversation when all of the premiers were in town. So to me, I just thought it was a misplay to make such a priority of this. Rah, rah, look at the money we put on the table. Uh, press conference at a hospital instead of using that time to actually get the deals finalized. Not surprisingly, I agree with Rachel on that one, too. Uh, one of the old hands at these um, First Minister's conferences told me that Mondays, we were talking about how much they've changed, and he said that uh, what we have this week in Ottawa is a four-ring circus, because there really was, there was stuff going on at the Delta Hotel, there was stuff at the Flaherty Building, there was a technical briefing, which I almost gave the misplay of the week, too, because... The, were you there? They, I was <laughs> listening on my, yeah. <laughs> they, they arrived at the press briefing, again, as, you know, not only with no deal, but with no details. background paper or details. And they started floating all these numbers to the reporters who were saying, but, but we don't have that yet. So it, it yeah. was a little, it was a bit of a shoddy, shoddily managed. Yeah, rock and roll. Day, yeah, and roll yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's not like they haven't had time to prepare. That's what is, That's right. is most irritating. In the meantime, the healthcare system is ailing. Yep. We all know. We all know the problems of this healthcare system. And I, I, at least, you know, they didn't storm out. So at least they behaved. Yep. And, you know, that's, that's like the bar is low here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, Greg, let, let's hear your play. But I, I, I want to take people to take a listen to this and then let's hear your play. What we see this as is a, is a starting point. It's a, it's a down payment on, on further discussions. So, Greg, this is your, your play. Do, do you think Ontario is saying, okay, this is just, this is just the minimum, we're going to get more? Is that what he's saying? You know... <laughs> Um, there was one, and, and Susan will remember this, I'm, I'm just going to hearken back to, to something that we heard from another premier in another time back in 2004 when Paul Martin had his um, uh, sleepover at 24 Sussex when they were trying to cut the, the deal then on health care. And one of the premiers came out after, he said, well, I've never been to a negotiation like this. He said, you know, normally you shoot for the moon except something less. So we came in. Um, asking for 30 billion and expected we would get 20, and we ended up leaving town with 40. So that was different. Um, look, uh, the, the Trudeau senior once said, there, "There's the only way you're going to make the premiers happy is to give them everything that they want," and uh, that's not what I was elected for. So I think there's a. We've all seen enough of these um, federal provincial meetings. The premiers come in; they pretty know well know what's coming. Uh, before they get there. Uh, the officials have worked out a lot of this stuff. Nobody is shocked. Um, 
And it's just how they behave coming out of these things. And this is the first time in memory, frankly, that I can remember there being a major uh, health deal that did not turn into a gong show. And that was my play of, of the week was to all the first ministers. Hey, look, you can get together. You can get things done and you can do it in a respectful way. And it, it doesn't have to be a circus the whole time. So um, yeah. that would be my play for the week. And that, that's a pretty good play, I understand. But again, I think the bar is very low. So Susan, how, and, and, and I want to go fast around the table, how generous do you think Canadians would be if this was not happening, if they had stormed out and said, oh, there is no deal, even if it's not the deal they were, you know, hoping for? No way. No okay. way. I, I bet all the people who are viewing this right now would say, no more games, no more political games yeah. with this. This is uh, not on. Yeah, I don't think Canadians care who's paying the check. If they can get their surgery on time, if they can get a family doctor, they are not really interested in the political, you know, is it the provincial government or the federal government? They just want to get health care. And at the end of the day, I think the, the premiers are probably reading the room and understanding that uh, they don't want to get locked into a back and forth over this because Canadians are pressuring them now to act. Greg Weston, how generous do you think Canadians would be? You know, you gave them a play because they did their job. That's a good thing. How generous do you think and patient do you think Canadians would have been if they had all stormed out and this hadn't happened? Zero. I, I think that I think that the the tolerance is 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 totally low. Listen, you're you're right, Joyce. The bar is very low for this, which is kind of pathetic. That just um, behaving like um, adults in the in the room uh, is 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 worth accolades. But um, you know, there's another thing here too that that. The deal making is not done here. There is still one on one between the federal government. Each of the provinces, they're going to cut a deal as it as it goes along. So this is just the first step. Uh, the really tough bargaining, in fact, may come now into where that um, that money is going to go. For people watching this, the good news is um, uh, we've seen it in the past that when they cut these deals, things can actually improve in healthcare. So yeah. there's hope yet. Yep, there is hope. So on that positive note, <laughs> I think we should leave it at that. Susan, uh, Rachel, and Greg, thanks for being there. Thanks uh, for your plays and misplays. And that is your Power Play Week in politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We will be back right here on Monday. And now we're going to hand you off over to our colleague Angie Seth in Toronto. Have yourselves a wonderful and safe weekend.